Thanks for tuning in. I'm Sarah Lee, and this is the Influence Watch Podcast. Uh, On today's episode, I have taken over the interviewee's chair. I'm sorry, interviewer's chair. And I'm going to be talking to our research director and usual podcast host, uh, Mike Watson, about an interesting little sort of um, social media, not really fight, but let's just put it this way. Mike wrote something and it uh, it raised the ire (laughs) of certain person out in our political world. So um, we're going to be talking about that. We're going to be talking about the issue at hand. We're going to be talking about what Mike wrote and um, why that actually raised the ire of uh, this person. So, hey, Mike, welcome again to the, to your own show. <laughs> Thanks, Sarah. <laughs> sure. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about uh, what just recently happened. The person in question who took exception to something that Mike uh, wrote and published at National Review um, is Oren Cass, and he's the executive director of American Compass. And the piece that Mike wrote, you can look it up. Um, it's called Does American Compass Point Left? I think that's the title. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, and um, it was in response to something that Cass had written. Cass, who is nominally a conservative, has uh, adopted this position that there should be a redistributionist right where the conservatives in this country ought to start. And, um, and just for, for the record, redistributionist right is my term. Oh, um, OK. OK, good. The, it's a term the, of art. <laughs> yeah, the um, what. Cass's position is, is mm-hmm. that free market capitalism essentially has failed and needs to be replaced by industrial policy and organized labor. So central planning in manufacturing, central planning in, uh, uh, in you know, the, the industry of the country. And then, uh, you know, if that isn't social democratic enough for you, uh, we need to strengthen labor unions. That's basically right. his, his ideology. Right. And he wrote a, a, a an article, an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, where he sort of outlines this and he talks about uh, the name of that article is America Needs a Conservative Labor Movement. And he even addresses this idea that like, that sounds crazy, right? Well, let me tell you why it's not crazy. And he gets into sort of the populist ideas behind labor unions and how labor unions uh, don't have to be, as you put it, all about central planning, centralized planning. Um, and so tell me what you, that that's his position. Tell me what you wrote in National Review and what you said about his idea. And then we'll talk about what he said on Twitter. Yeah, so the problem with Cass and American Compass uh, that I addressed in the, in the piece was not so much their policy program, although that's a problem, uh, as their their purpose as revealed by their financial support, by the, the, the entities that are, are funding them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we know that at least two major big liberal foundations, the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation and the Ahmadiyar Network, uh, have provided six-figure support to American Compass. And they have done so as part of program broader programs in the foundation uh to oppose in the respective foundations to oppose free market capitalism mm-hmm. uh you know there was this article in the chronicle of philanthropy which is the sort of big trade publication for foundations 
that was portraying Hewlett's efforts, quote, to identify a successor to neoliberalism. And what they mean by neoliberalism is actually free market free market economics is expounded by Hayek and Milton Friedman and supposedly funded into the world by, quote, a succession of conservative philanthropists such as Charles Koch. Um, and on the and I mean, the Amidiar network, it's even worse. Uh, the Amidiar network provided American Compass money as part of its reimagining capitalism project. And in the sort of the manifesto that the Amidiar network put out um, to say kind of this is what we want to do when we reimagine capitalism. And, you know, it must be said that Orrin Cass, the executive director of uh, American Compass, is acknowledged for thoughtful comments and valuable insight in the development of that manifesto. So, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean he agrees with all of it, but that certainly means that he's aware, you know, he's aware of what a Midiar network is doing. Um, right. Let me just stop you there for a second yep. for listeners who don't know who, what the Amidiar network is. Uh, Pierre Amidiar, he's the founder of eBay, right? Yes. Yes. Right. And he, in 2016, I want to say, he did come up with this, as you mentioned, this idea of like reimagining, reimagining capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. He's been, he's been, he's had a sort of unorthodox or his sort of philanthropic and political approach has changed in the past, you know, since 2016, sort of before 2016, he tended to, he threw a lot of support around. I mean, he was a liberal, his personal giving, um, you know, like to candidates was liberal. Uh, but you know, he would support like a Henry Olson, um, uh, who's a, you know, who's a, a conservative, uh, through his democracy fund. And there was some, you know, there was an element of balance or an element of you could make the case that he was supporting people on both sides to have an, a frank exchange of ideas. Starting in 2016, he becomes much more hard Democratic partisan, I think, in response to the rise of Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. uh, he funded the um, the PACs that supported the Evan McMullen presidential campaign. Mm -hmm. uh, he later, his uh, nonprofit network later funded uh, the continuation of the sort of successor organization to the Evan McMullen presidential campaign, Stand Up Republic, uh, which now advocates for the entire package of left-wing election administration uh, efforts. Uh, his so still uh, ostensibly supporting, again, I'll use the word again, ostensible conservatives. They were just very anti-Trump. Yeah. And same thing with uh, the Defending Democracy Together network of non of nonprofits that includes, among other things, The Bulwark, The Online Magazine, mm -hmm. uh, Republicans for the Rule of Law, I think, is done by them. Um, so so Warren... So Orrin Cass's organization taking money from the Omidyar network, it's sort of in line with this, again, ostensible conservative uh, position. But as you mentioned, Omidyar started out very, very well. His position has changed. Yeah, I mean, that the concern, the concern and it goes for the Hewlett funding as well, mm -hmm. is that he's not is that. 
are they engaged in a frank exchange of ideas or are they trying to sell liberalism to conservatives mm -hmm. or and sell liberal or sell liberalism in a conservative in a conservative clothing? And that's pretty much the thesis, the ba the basic premise of your piece in National Review, as I read it. Yeah. And again, we can't you know, it's you know, he got. Cass got mad at me for not being not declaring, you know, for phrasing it in the form of a question. But it is a question, um, you know, because you can uh, have cross ideological funding to support a frank exchange of ideas. Mm -hmm. uh, you can have cross ideological funding uh, for a single issue that you agree on. Um, but you can also have and again, Omidyar has done this. Essentially, your cross ideological funding is to rent spokespeople for your ideology who ostensibly carry the flag of the other side. Yeah, I hate to use the expression, but, you know, buy the sellouts, right? Pay the sellouts to sell out. <laughs> Potentially, you, you could phrase it that way if you were being particularly uncharitable. <laughs> right. Um, the, and if as if you look at the the uh, the immediate network reimagining capitalism manifesto that you see things that should raise red flags and in the in the national review piece i point out that you know the the american compass's involvement is ostensibly in Amidiar's words building alignment around a coherent new vision and set of economic values and as part of this, Amidiar Network has five key pillars of change. And the second is basically an Ibram X. Kendi quote, quote, an explicitly anti-racist and inclusive economy. Anti-racism is the Ibram X. Kendi ideology that any effect of either public policy or the economy that has differential racial impact is ipso facto racist and must be constrained by government action. If not outright disassembled and dismantled. Yeah. Mm -hmm. the, the, such government action could include dismantling and disassembling. <laughs> yeah, they're using, you know, anti-racist uh, terminology also often is used around at the same time that things like decentering whiteness and it, it's uh, all part it's part of it's not technically critical race theory but it's very close to critical race theory mm -hmm. it's all in that same sort of radical left-wing interpretations of equity mm -hmm. um so and, you're right. So you're right when you say Orrin Cass, he, he did. He took to Twitter and he got upset with you and he said there are no coherent arguments. Uh, you're just asking questions in your article. But you were being particularly charitable, I thought, whereas, you know, you just pointed out if you want to be uncharitable, you can say buying the sellouts. But you just said at the end, you know, skepticism is warranted here, um, which I thought was, again, very charitable. Orrin Cass did not like that. Why do you think that is? I mean, nobody likes to have their their positions questioned. Uh, but he's saying at the same time that that's the whole point is that we're this is a marketplace of ideas. And so questioning is OK. So at, just as a I, I mean, mean, obviously, we work together, so I have a bias here. <laughs> but as a third party sort of observer of that, I'm like, can you have it both ways? You're saying you want the questions, but that the questions aren't enough or well, not good I, I mean because you can present the questions the more that you dig into Cass's 
and the the views they cast as as expounded, uh, the more questions arise, the more it looks like bog standard progressivism. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, throughout, you know, in his earlier work, and again, I point this out in the piece, in his earlier work, Cass is very clear about drawing distinctions between empowering, uh, you know, workers to collectively organize and which which he thinks is which he thinks is good. And I think it is reasonable to debate whether that's good. Um, And and simply giving power and authority to labor bosses. Uh, and the reforms that he proposes in his earlier work, which tend not to be, which are substantial, but not as radical, uh, certainly take that into consideration. Now, he's pushing something called sectoral bargaining. And I believe right. you and I have discussed sectoral bargaining before. We have. And I would like um, for you to talk about it again, because he yes. mentions it in his Wall Street Journal piece. And you really mention it in your international review piece. So um, yeah. tell us what that is again. So sectoral bargaining is this idea, and it's practiced in the continental European countries. Uh, France is the um, the example I usually refer to, although it's pretty extensive in Europe and in the Asian democracies. Uh, And the idea of sectoral bargaining is that labor unions and employer associations sit down and negotiate contracts that cover everybody in an industry. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you would have, let's just say McDonald's, Wendy's, Burger King, all sit down with the SCIU and the SCIU negotiates the contract. And that contract is then adopted by, uh, by Burger King, McDonald's and Wendy's and applies to everyone in the fast food industry, whether they are a union member or not, whether they uh, whether they uh, want the uh, the contract, whether they agree with the contract or not, it applies to everybody. And that's just the way it is Um, in France. The result is that even though there are fewer friend, the 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 union density, which is the wonky term for uh, the proportion of the workforce who are union members, the proportion of the work, French workforce that are union members is lower than the percentage in the United States, it's 8% versus 11. Okay. And, but because they have sectoral bargaining, 98% of the wage, wage and salary workforce is covered by a union contract. So that means that something like 90% of the workforce are covered by a contract negotiated by a union they didn't have anything they don't have anything to do with. Right, they have no say in it. They they probably don't even know like when the negotiations are happening, what's being discussed. It's very much You're right, it's very central planning. Yeah, it and unions have always you know, always unions have wanted this for a long time. Because it increases their power and authority, it it reduces competition, uh, it reduces the ability of companies to innovate, and frankly, it gives the unions more power. And this is where we have, where I raise sort of the ultimate red flag in all of this labor conservative stuff. 
the labor unions as they exist today are foundational pillars of left progressivism. Right. And also, when you just look at what Cass is trying to say, he's like, unions are great because it gives the workers more power. But what you're saying is, no, that's actually not what happens. It's the unions themselves. Ostensibly, you know, the the unions are made up of the workers, so that should be true, but it turns out not to be true. Yeah. And especially if you look at a union like the SEIU, they, you know, throughout the the SEIU's recent history, the union will actually reorganize itself to keep centralized control by the national union. So, you know, and and this doesn't necessarily always benefit the moderates and, you know, this isn't always just to box out moderates in the union, even, you know, reform leftists, uh, uh, Sal Rosselli, who is now who split off from the SCIU to form an independent, uh, an independent socialist union, the National Union of Health Workers, uh, you know, he was boxed out by one of these reorganizations. Uh, and so, you know, the, the unions are not just these sort of democratic expressions of the will of the workers. They are institutions with their own. Uh, their own immune systems, if you will. No, and I know what you mean, because if you think about it in these terms, in very simple terms, it's not a bad idea for workers to, you know, if they are all they all work in a certain industry to say, you know, we're going to form our own group that will speak for us. But it's born of the actual workers. Unions, as you mentioned, they're 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 institutions. They're insulated in a way from even the workers having an issue with what they're doing. Right. As as it stands now, uh, if you believe exit polling, Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, here's your here's your salt shaker. Uh, If you believe exit polling, something like 40 percent of uh, union families. So that's union members, people who are married to union members, children of union members who are of voting age and live in the same household. uh, Something like 40 percent vote Republican. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, something like 90% of the union political contributions go to Democratic candidates, and something like 99% of all the ancillary spending, so all the grants to think tanks, all the grants to community organizing groups, all the ballot measure campaigns go to left progressive interests. So it doesn't seem like the unions actually what you're saying is it doesn't sound like the unions actually are representing the interests of the members. Certainly a substantial proportion of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, now. Again, what the unions would say is, well, we want to we want to we want an election too bad, Mr. 40 percent. We are the 60 percent. You get nothing. Ha. You know, that's democracy. Ha. Mm-hmm. Um, but. You know, very few. There are very few ostensibly private associations. The only other one I can think of is homeowners associations. And everybody knows that homeowners associations are, you know, very honorable and upstanding uh, entities that, you know, are not known for their venality or anything. Right. Um, But uh, but labor unions and homeowners associations may be a couple of the only ostensibly private groups that can actually compel you 
to participate in. Them. I can't I can't think of any others. Um, and the way that exclusive bargaining works, uh, you know, it's kind of tough. You don't you 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 don't want to be a, a part of this tough. We can right. Make- right. Well, I'll tell you one other thing, and, and we should probably close this out because we're we're going over time. But uh, one of the other things I noticed that Oren Cass did in response to you, and I'm not trying to come down on Oren Cass. I, I think he, you know, he's he's clearly. Yeah, a, I, I, I think he's sincere and wrong. I mean, right? He, you know, I if if, if I if I if I had him here, I would say, you know, I I think you're wrong, but it's actually nice to have someone who isn't ostensibly a communist talking about labor about labor representation issues because i read enough labor material that you know what 90 percent of it is written by trade unionists right um and one thing he does mention is he talks about in his in his twitter response to you which i think it's a really good thing that that he responded frankly and i do hope maybe there's a there's a way for the two of you to talk but he 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 cites a couple of well-known names as saying, you know, these people are on board. Marco Rubio was one of them. J.D. Vance was one of them. Um, and as a way to sort of bolster his argument, which is always a strange thing to do, because it's almost like, look at these popular people that like my idea. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um so what do you make of that? Do you, I mean, it really doesn't change. Like I said, the, the prime uh, point of your article was like, look, the money that, that this effort is taking in is coming from, from some pretty left-leaning sources. Yeah, from pretty left-leaning sources with left-leaning motives. And right. again, I think what – I think what what Cass, when he's – um, certainly when he was writing one, the once and future worker, which is his, his book on, on, uh, economic policy, including, uh, labor policy, uh, from a few years ago and, uh, politicians like Vance and Rubio, uh, you know, they're looking at a real thing that's happened, which is mm-hmm. that there's been some changes in the party coalitions, uh, some of the wealthier professional classes, uh, you know, we put out even back in 2016, who is the party of the one percent with Michael Barone at Capital Research Center and these sort of core cultural and economic centers, you know, they're not just democratic, they're wildly left uh, in their political giving, not just their voting. Uh, and that political giving means that this is what the rich people in these areas are doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and. So it's so, just pragmatic at that point. Yeah, yeah. And so, and meanwhile, you know, there have been, there's been an intake of uh, less well-off working class, uh, you know, wage earners into uh, the conservative and Republican camp. And I think that there, that it's a sense that is in part a sincere attempt to be, to provide them representation, you know, to provide their interests representation. Mm-hmm. Um, I am waving a giant red flag when the groups that you're aligning with uh, to ostensibly hold out those interests are socialist think tanks and uh, community organizing groups uh, on on the far left. 
And I think that's fair. I think that's absolutely fair to, to, to wave that red flag, because if we've learned anything over the past five, six, ten years, I guess, um, it's that, you know, the left side of the political aisle and some of these special interests on the left, they, they will masquerade as one thing while trying to achieve another. I think we've done a lot of work on that at the Capital Research Center. Um, and so if this is a case where that's happening, where some of these left-leaning interests are almost taking advantage of well-meaning conservatives who are like, well, this is a trend and maybe we should try to figure out how to make this fit into conservatism, it's good to point that out. I don't right. see any. Any, and, any problem and, with that? And, and and I think there's an and I think there's an element potentially of policy naivete. You know, when you're uh, promoting, you you know, the work that you do with um, with uh, the gentleman's name is David Rolfe. He's a trades unionist. I he was he is either the current he's either still or was until recently the head of the SCIU in the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. You know. These people have an ideology, an ideology and a commitment, and it goes beyond the interests of the worker. It is not more for it is not just more for the worker. And if you're not aware of that history, if you're not aware of the institutional structures that maintain that, you are going to make policy mistakes. Okay, fair enough. Well, Mike, this was a great conversation. And again, I I hope I wasn't too, uh, as Mike, you said, uncharitable. I'm not trying to be to Orrin Cass and the Mike's term of art redistributionist, right? Um, I I just think that, you know, we have to talk about these things in terms of how they ultimately could affect um, the economy, workers themselves, uh, the the political turmoil in this country. So, uh, Mike, thanks so much for coming on and talking about it. Thank you for uh, letting me do that, Sarah. Yeah, yeah. Um, That's our show for this week. We encourage you to subscribe on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have already subscribed, thank you. And please leave us a five-star rating. We'll talk to you again next week.